Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast Special Edition. Yes, the first of eight special episodes releasing over the next eight weeks. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by the host of said special podcast. It's John McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. What are you doing here, John? I am spending eight episodes talking to some very interesting people across the industry on a range of different topics from tactical stuff mainly but also touching on some geopolitical stuff we've got a world cup coming up as well so we'll be talking about that i'm just really excited to have some interesting conversations with some interesting people mm, and who's the first of those interesting people so in today's episode i will be talking to jonathan wilson the author of inverting the pyramid hot diggity dog mm, that is and, good and i'll be talking all about his book and looking back over a decade uh, to see the impact that that book has had and whether yeah. he's changed his ideas on things. And can I shock you? You can. Even I've read that book. Wow. Yeah, so it's very influential, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. Well, I can't wait to hear this episode. Yeah? Me neither. We'll start it now. Yes. Okay. Hello and welcome to TIFO Talks, a podcast on the TIFO Football Podcast Network. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined today by the godfather of football tactics writing, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. Jonathan is obviously a football writer, the editor of the Blizzard magazine and the author of books about Sunderland, England, Liverpool, Manchester United, Barcelona. And then we've got some socio-historical books, so Behind the Curtain, so that's all about Eastern European football, Angels with Dirty Faces, that's about the footballing history of Argentina, The Names Heard Long Ago, which is about the golden age of Hungarian football and how it shaped the modern game, The Outsider, History of the Goalkeeper. You've also written a novel and a couple of biographical works as well, so Brian Clough biography, and then a book which has just come out, we're going to talk about a little bit later, Two Brothers, The Life and Lives of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. But the book that we're going to focus on mainly today, Inverting the Pyramid, which I suppose is your seminal work, I suppose it's the, the thing that you're best known for. Looking forward to having a good chat about that today. Um, that was released in 2008 and then there was a second edition which came out in 2014. But it's obviously well over 10 years since you first published Inverting the Pyramid. So maybe to start with, just, just a retrospective look on how do you feel about Inverting the Pyramid looking back after all that time? I, I sort of now realise that people say how long does it take to write? Well, it took 10 months, which is ridiculous, but... There'd been sort of 10 years before that, 15, 20 years before that, when I'd been thinking about those themes, thinking mm. about those topics. I think I was profoundly lucky to catch a wave of rising interest in, in tactics. And that book sort of, it's become this sort of source material that lots of my other books are tributaries from that of, oh, here's a detail that didn't quite make sense at the time. How can I go into more detail about it? How can I explain that more? It still brings in money every year. So it's, it's a very good thing to have done. And, and yeah, the, there was a third edition as well, and Touchwood will be a fourth edition next year, so every five years is the plan. But still buy it now, don't wait till next year, because we don't know for absolutely certain that's happening. <laughs> I know that is the thing, it is, it is sort of infinitely updatable and revisable. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's the revisions as well, it's not just sticking the chapter on the end, it's when you realise, oh yeah, I didn't quite get that right, or, or you suddenly realise, I mean, I think the second edition suddenly I had to go back and fill in loads of details on Spanish football in the 1920s because to explain Barcelona, yes, yeah, so the first book came out in 2008, so Guardiola hadn't even been appointed at mm. Barcelona at that point. And Guardiola's probably the most important thing to happen in football tactics, well, since the early 70s, since, since Cruyff first came along. 
But to explain him, you have to create the context. You then have to go back and you explain what the circumstances of Spanish football were before him. You mentioned the context there before inverting the pyramid. You obviously were thinking about football tactics at that point. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the, the sort of prompts that led you to, to write the book, but where were you at before inverting the pyramid in terms of tactics writing? Were, was it something you were consciously doing or was it just something that was the way that you wrote about football at well, the time? Well, I, I think the thing I mentioned in the intro of inverting the pyramid was during year 2004 uh, when I was working for the FT and the FT in their rare wisdom to save money decided to have journalists share rooms, which is just a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> so there was some tension, shall we say, between me and the lad I was sharing with. Uh, he seems to have gone on to have an annoyingly great career. But <laughs> uh, never mind. And there was four FT journalists out there in, in Portugal and we were having tapas one night in Lisbon and got into this massive row about whether tactics mattered or not. I was very much on the side of yes. The lad I was sharing room with was very much on the side of no. I think it's fair to say he's not a football specialist. And I sort of hadn't realized how strongly I felt about the importance of tactics. And, and the, the, the fact that you then realize that, you know, it's that Galliano line. I don't particularly like Galliano, but that line, tell me how you play and I'll tell you who you are. And I think there's a profundity to that. And you realize, well, yeah, football tactics are the most obvious manifestation of how culture has an impact on football. You know, to, to, to play in a certain way, there have to be certain stimuli to make you think in that way. And I think people can take that too far. I think a lot of the talk of national styles can be pretty blunt stereotypes and not necessarily particularly useful. In certain cases, as in Argentina in the 1920s, it's utterly self-conscious and therefore it is really important and interesting. If, if you're a coach, the way you look at football and the way you set about the winning of games, even if you think the winning of games is the most important thing or not, all of that is socially and culturally conditioned. And do you feel as though that was a fairly representative position to be interested in tactics at those times or was it were you in the minority at that point i think i was in the minority but i think it was common i mean david pleat had been doing his tactics column the guardian for for a while and and he obviously had a certain popularity i think you'd seen with with andy gray on sky going to greater depth than, than we'd gone into before so yeah probably wasn't the minority among regular football writers but i think they were very much sort of responding to yeah football journalism certainly pre the, the absolute takeover of the internet age was a pretty conservative place yeah. but but i mean I, yeah i absolutely did not initiate it it was it was on its way i just happened to be the one who, who got there at the right time mm. and in terms of what actually prompted you to, to to write the book how did the book come about in that sense yeah i mean i'd love to say there was some great sort of plan but i'd written the book on on this new European football behind the curtain and i was then I was in an office with my editor and uh, my agent and we were talking about you know, what should I do next the, behind the curtain had been well reviewed it, it had done relatively well in terms of sales not brilliantly but but you know enough for them to be interested in doing another book and we were knocking around some ideas and I'd just done a big piece for 442 magazine on I think it was the 10 key tactical innovations and some of that had come from from behind the curtain that people like Lobanovsky mm. Uh, clearly hugely important in, in the development of tactics and Hungary as well the, the you know, withdrawn centre forward and Shebesh and, and Bukovi and, and, and people like that and so as I said yeah, maybe maybe this is something that could be expanded into a book and it, my editor 
had a few years earlier commissioned a writer from the Times called Peter Ball to write a history of tactics and he died before he finished it. Mm. So he was already sold on the idea that, that this was something that was lacking. Uh, so as soon as I suggested that, he was like, yeah, yeah, definitely do that. So it was the second book I got a contract for, but then some of them were doing well under Roy Keane and by chance the CEO of Orion is a Sunderland fan. And so he was very keen to do a book on Roy Keane and Sunderland. So mm. that was sort of rushed out in between times. And then once I got going with the tactics book, it became a much bigger thing than I'd anticipated. I, you know, I, I suddenly stopped thinking about the money and started thinking, right, I've got to go to Kiev. I've got to go to Moscow. I've got to go to, to Germany. I've got to go to, to Austria. I've got to go to Sao Paulo and Rio and Buenos Aires. And I've got to you know, do proper digging. Yeah. And, and what, what, what I sort of found was that every country was pretty comfortable in its own tactical development, but nobody was really putting it into a more global sphere. Nobody was sort of joining the dots. Yeah. So what the book really becomes is the story of how ideas travel. And what's great about that is it then becomes about the individuals who've made them travel. So I think when you talk about tactics writing, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not somebody who who can look at a game and tell you instantly, you know, why it's gone. I, I might have an idea, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm not going to go and be able to go into granular detail straight away. And to maybe even after watching it back three or four times, I might not have the granular detail that a real specialist in that has. But what I was interested in was the people who who carried those ideas, and you then realise that actually the whole thing is to do with the rise of fascism and. <laughs> yeah, Hungarians and Austrians getting out, which then becomes the name said long ago. Obviously, now it's much more complex because the spread of information is much freer and much quicker, and everything's not siloed in the way it was 100 years ago. Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little bit later, actually. But before we do that, the, obviously, the whole book, and I think the longevity of the book, hangs on that metaphor that you landed on inverting the pyramid. Um, this notion that, like, you have these early front loaded teams. And, and slowly through time, there's a realization that actually if you defend, it can, can benefit you. And we see that migration of players backwards. That's obviously a really nice metaphor to tell the story through. And, and it was a really nice metaphor in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> Things have got a lot more complicated since. Right. And what's really annoying is me and my agent had an idea for a much better title. And we were in the pub. And by the next morning, neither of us could remember it. <laughs> <laughs> and I rang him the next morning and was like, what was the idea we had? Oh, yeah, it was really, oh, oh, I don't know what it was. So there is somewhere in the ether a better title, but I don't know, nobody knows what it there's is. An, there's an argument to be made, though, that like the better title would have been a less successful title. Well, possibly, possibly, um, yeah. But I'm interested in how, that, how you arrived at that metaphor, because obviously that's the way that you're telling the story, and it's, it becomes the framework in which you hang the history off. So was it something that arrived in an inspirational moment? Or was well, it? I, I think when you're doing, if you're doing a book like that, it could just be very episodic, which to an extent it is, it's not yet that naturally it is. But if you're trying to sort of create some overarching sort of thread running through, Mm. you're sort of thinking well we begin with 127 or 226 or yeah 235 when when people really start thinking about it for the mm. first time and by 2008 it looked like center forwards were being refined out of existence which was you know before Messi did it you know that first book the first edition of it really ends with Totti doing it for Spalletti's Roma and, and with United doing it um, with Ronaldo, Rooney, and uh, Tevez sort of sharing that that role, and, and what you now realise, or what I now realise, is that I totally underplayed the importance of Carlos Queiroz in that. And Queiroz is coming from this Portuguese school mm. that you know has produced 
Yeah, to Vicefadri, to Mourinho, to Andrew Villas-Boas, to Marco Silva. Yeah, that's all linked to the Manchester United. And so the fascinating thing that I didn't go into in that book, which I really wish I had done, is Mourinho turns up in England in 2004, wins the league twice. And how does Ferguson topple that? He brings in the originator of the Portuguese school. He fights Portugal with Portugal. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing I think at the time none of us were really sort of conscious of. And I think probably now we would be more aware of that because I think we're much more accepting the role of assistant managers in, in generating styles and mm. methods. So the... Oh, so sorry, so the point was... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah we, we'd gone from 2-3-5 to 5-3-2 or 4-4-1-1 or 4-3-3 non. So it seemed a very obvious, this has gone from being very attack heavy to very defense heavy. Mm. And if you take... C three five to five three two. It's a very nice sort of inversion. Mm. And I guess once you've got that metaphor, you can just sort of write the history. So ha ha once you've got the this sort of idea of you know the the inversion of the pyramid, was that easy to just? Well, write? yeah. I mean, it, it's it's sort of a history. Sort of it it's very it's pretty easy to trace uh, up till nineteen ninety ish. And I don't know whether it becomes harder to trace after that because the football gets more complex or because we're still too close. To really you know, get the distance to to sort of strip away the the, the needless detail, but it, you know you, you see pretty obviously that we go from two three five to WM to four two four to four three three to four four two to Catnacha sort of hanging around in that same era to total football to pressing in you know, the Liverpool way of doing it or the English way of doing it in the late seventies. Uh, Lobanovsky, you know, another you know, pressing really has the three avenues, the English, the Dutch and the, the Soviet. Mm. And then I guess you get the high salt bar, which from an English point of view is sort of a, a dead end. And then, and then you get, well, from early 80s onwards, the back three returning. Although the back three, too, I mean, although the back three was around in, you know, Jim Smith used it, for instance, I think Sunderland used it under Len Asher, so the 1985 League Cup final. Which I've, I hadn't realised. I interviewed David Corner, the bloke who made the mistake that let Norwich score mm. two or three years ago, and I was sort of like, "What? The, what was the system? I don't. Know, how does this work?" And then yeah, spoke to David Corner. He was, "Oh yeah, no, it was, a, it was a back three. But when Chelsea won the title under Conte in when was that? 2015, 2017. was Mourinho. Yeah. Yeah, and then Leicester sixteen. That so that was the first time anybody won the English league with a back three since Everton in 63, which is yeah. remarkable. So, so anyway, so the point being that that story is pretty easy to yeah. to trace. Uh, and you just then you're looking at the... But yeah, people know those individual stories, but you're looking at the transition. Yeah. Why, why did it change? Who were the people who made that change? What was the research process like? Because obviously a lot of these tactical ideas aren't being explicitly written about necessarily right well they're not they weren't in england they i mean they absolutely were in brazil or or italy or, or germany yeah that, that, the, the the sort of reluctance to discuss tactics that, that for a long time we had here doesn't really exist elsewhere and then yeah there had been work done done elsewhere so you know to an extent my my job was was synthesis and filling in the gaps. I, you know, I guess any any history is synthesis and filling in the gaps, mm. unless you have some radical new new detail. The, the thing that I think was most significant in drawing it all out, and it was sort of the moment when I knew 
this, this sort of diagram that I'd drawn worked was in, in Brazil. Yes, you know, so Brazilian football really up until late 30s wasn't as dominant as it should have been in South America. They were very much of a third power behind Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, and that begins to change. And this is, yeah, this is pretty well attested in Brazilian histories with the arrival of Doi Kushner at Flamengo in, in 1936. Except they call him Doi Kushner. And then, so, okay, so he was Doi Kushner. Oh, we don't know. He was a European. Right, but have you looked beyond that? And a couple of historians go, well, yeah, I've tried to find him, but he's just not in any records. He doesn't exist. And so there was um, a bloke called Roberto Asaf, who's sort of the, the absolute doyen of historians of Flamengo, had written to, I think, the five Central European FAs saying, yeah, do you know who this bloke is? And they all replied, nope. And then there was a, there was a, a radio journalist in, in Budapest, a mate of mine, said, are you sure it's Kushner, not Kushner? And the R and the E the other way around. Mm. And I was, I don't know, why? Well, he's Dory Kushner. He went, no, he played for MTK, won five caps. And then he succeeded Jimmy Hogan at MTK in 1918 when Hogan returned to, to the UK. Mm. And suddenly you say, okay, everything falls into place. That Hogan is not merely the, the father of Central European football, He's a huge influence on Kushner, who's the father of Brazilian football. So Hogan then is the grandfather of Brazilian football. And that was a fact nobody had, had put together before. So that's a huge, was, was a hugely important thing in getting that sort of family tree sort of flowing out. Mm. What I then realized was there had to be an equivalent figure in Argentina. Um, and I found him, and I think in the first edition, I referred to him as Emerico Herschel because that's what he was called in Argentina. And I didn't really go into too much detail because I thought, well, it's just replicating you know, what, what I said about um, Kushner in, in Brazil. Mm. But I then sort of, when I did the Argentina book, I thought well, I should, and this is what I mean about sort of picking up details, I thought I should investigate who is Emerico Herschel, why did he go to Argentina? And you realize that he, he actually doesn't exist. Um, his, his name in, in, in German would be Emmerich Herschel, in Hungarian would be Imre Herschel. And he went by all three, but he never played football. He, he lied. He said he did. And I, I found his daughter still living in, in Buenos Aires. She, she said, oh, yeah. He had all these stories about how he played in Prague and he played in Africa and he played in India and he played in Paris. He said, oh, I just don't think he did. And, but you chased them all up and no, nope, he didn't play with any of them. <laughs> and it turned out he was just a bluffer, but also a genius. <laughs> I'm interested in your sense when you're writing it that you were writing the definitive history of football tactics and I guess you you had choices to make about which coaches to include were you aware of that when you were writing that that a lot of this is just to do with I guess your preference for for certain coaches yes and no I mean I I, I got a lot of criticism when it came out for not including more on Wenger for instance okay. but you know Wenger is clearly a great coach I just don't think he was a particularly innovative coach he was innovative in English terms but I, I think what he was doing was pretty pretty standard so not all great coaches have to be innovators. I think the innovators stand out a lot. I, mean, I got criticized in Germany for not really including many Germans. Mm. But again, I don't think until the modern age, and certainly post-2008, Germany's had a huge impact on, on how tactics have gone. But Germany was, you know, even their sort of version of total football, I'm slightly cautious of even using that term about them, but it's a term that Glanville uses of them in, in the 70s. They didn't press. They were still using a, a libero and man-marking. So they, they sort of worked out how to manipulate the ball and how to change positions, but they weren't pressing. So there weren't many Germans in there because German coaches weren't innovative 
until this this wave of Rangnick and Klopp and Tuchel and Nagelsmann, clearly there there is some some level of uh, of choice. But I think the actual innovators are pretty clear. I don't think they're that controversial. Yeah, and I suppose the innovators often are the the, the peripheral coaches as well, right? I mean, even think of someone like Marcelo Bielsa, obviously an in, innovative coach, but in many respects has always been on the periphery of these sorts of discussions. Right? Yeah, I mean, he is at least pretty well known and almost despite himself, has sort of hmm. uh, projected himself into the mainstream discourse. I think that, you know, the interesting people from that point of view, people like Martin Francisco, who nobody in Brazil has really heard of. Yet he appears to be the man who invented the back four. Hmm. Certainly one of the earliest... Yeah, one of the pioneers of it, but he was doing it at a team called Novovia, who never won anything, so nobody really paid them much attention. And I think that yeah, that's certainly possible that people were doing slightly unusual things at minor clubs, but they just never sort of invaded the general consciousness. And I think you've also got to be very careful that some coaches are just much better at projecting themselves. So I, I think I think Alf Ramsey, for instance, is massively undervalued as an innovator because he didn't talk about it. Mm. And one of the reasons, and he didn't talk about it for two reasons. A, he was very shy, and it just wouldn't have been natural to him to talk about himself. But also, he didn't want other people to know what he was doing. One of the extraordinary things that Ramsey does is to, he invents the 442 effectively. He uses it by mistake because of injury. Not by mistake, but it's forced on him in a friendly away to Spain in December 1965. And he thinks, right, that works. And he doesn't use it again until the, f- the very last friend England play before the World Cup, which is in Poland, uh, against Poland in, in Hrotsov, when he, he, you know, he brings in Martin Peters and Alan Ball at the same time. So it's, there's no winger. It's a, it's a 4-4-2. And it's in Hrotsov, so nobody sees it. Nobody really pays any attention to it. And then he doesn't even use it in the group stage. He uses a winger in the group stage because he doesn't want the good teams to see what he's doing. And he finally unleashes it against Argentina. Mm. And then the, the remarkable sort of echo of that is Carlos Bilardo in 1986, who'd worked out the back three worked on this tour of Europe in 1984, which went staggeringly badly for a number of reasons. And so everybody sort of thought, oh, he's using the back three because he just doesn't have any fullbacks. And he thinks, yeah, that works. Let's hide it away. And he brings it out in the quarterfinal against England yeah. and playing Maradona not, not really as a 10, but as a second striker. And suddenly Maradona has the platform and has his, well, two brilliant games plus the final. Whenever I read Inverting the Pyramid, which I, I think is testament to how often I go back to it, but I'm always reminded of the, the quote by Michel Foucault, who's, who talks about the present epoch is an epoch of space. Uh, and he wrote this, I think, in 1976. Uh, and I, I'm always made aware of that fact when I'm reading Inverting the Pyramid, because so much of that is about like thinking about space. How do we, how do we manipulate space? How do we control space? How do we exploit space? And you obviously get to the the end of the book, and you know the question is how far does that migration go? You talk about even four six zero formations and stuff, and I just sort of wondered that like maybe we've reached the end of that epoch of space, and maybe we need a, a different metaphor now to talk about about football. And wondered if you thought that you had any thoughts about what that metaphor might be like moving forwards. I don't know. I still think I still think fundamentally what you're trying to do with tactics is to get your extra man in space and get the ball to him. Mm. I think that's that's just fundamental. And equally from a defensive point of view, you're trying to stop that. You're trying to shut that down. So I think at the highest level, football will always be the search for space. And you know, it's sort of David Winner who really, I think, brought that idea into the mainstream with, with Brilliant Orange and yeah, he, he talks about the Netherlands as a nation as being very conscious of space and how they can 
generate more space with with dikes and reclaiming land from the sea. But I was I read a thing this week that apparently they're now doing that in reverse in the Netherlands because this causes flooding. So there's a whole process of rewilding and sort of letting the sort of sandbanks sandbanks return. And you sort of think, oh, I wonder if that sort of I don't think it does have any impact on football. But again, that's the danger of drawing metaphors from one sphere and sort yeah. of placing them over something else. There will never be a time when having your striker with the ball surrounded by players is a good thing. Mm. I just think the ways we generate space change. So you know, one of the ways that we do it now that we absolutely weren't doing it in 2008 was a goalkeeper. In fact, he wasn't even allowed to do it. A goalkeeper taking a goal kick five yards. And you see that happening right down the pyramid now. And so that that sort of panic of the goalkeeper's got the ball or the centre-back's got the ball, just hoof it, get it out. That's just not there. I mean, the goal of Sunderland scored against Reading was a brilliant example. I mean, Reading didn't press particularly well, but you know, Sunderland had the confidence to do that. Uh, last year, I went to see him Red Star against Ashington, which is what, seventh tier. And they were passing the ball out from the back. And mm. partly see, that's for pitch technology. And that's one of those external factors I was talking about that we now understand how you can... I, actually, I don't understand. <laughs> Some people understand how to put fibers within the pitch, which mean they don't break up so they don't become quagmires, don't become mud bats. And once that happens, well, you don't have to have a velvety first touch to be able to take your first touch effectively for granted. And obviously the ball being not this big, uneven mm. leather thing with bits hanging off it, that changes weight during the game, changes mass during the game. Uh, and boots being much more delicate, much more receptive. And that, I think, is something Guardiola really benefited from in, in 2008, that quite apart from the, the law changes, which meant that smaller players weren't getting bullied out of games, weren't getting physically intimidated, that the playing area got bigger because of changes in the offside law. Also, just the equipment was better, so you could, and the pitch is better, so you can trust your first touch. And then the game becomes about moving the ball quickly to create mm. the space. Whereas before, there probably was more of a safety first thing of, yeah, you don't want the ball rolling to your goalkeeper because it, it might bobble. Yeah, I suppose space has become much more phasally based. Everyone thinks about what what am I doing in this phase of play? What am I doing in, in that phase of play? These people talk about rest defence. So you're thinking, even when you're attacking, thinking about the structures that you have defensively to, to be able to actually control. Yeah, well, if we well. lose the ball, what, what do we do? Yeah. What, what's, what's our... Yeah, you, you, you attack in a way to ready yourself for a counter-attack. Mm. So you're, you're thinking that stage ahead. Yeah. But I also think... In the days when we talked about quite rigid 4-4-2s or 4-3-3s, your formations are almost irrelevant now. Yeah. And not quite a useful sort of, to give you a sort of a brief overview. But in the old days, in the old days, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, you would get teams who were just 4-4-2 mm -hmm. and they wouldn't move out. And just defensively, you want your structure. But now I think we're, we're much more conscious that players need to negotiate their role within the structure, that the, the structure shouldn't be restrictive. It should be... Mm -hmm you know, a, a framework that you, you build upon. Sasaki's idea that there, there are four aspects that should determine your position, your teammates, your position, the ball and the space. Mm. That seems to me something that should have been obvious for a long, long time, but it only really became obvious after Saki. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually quite interested in the differences now between what we talk about as positional play, whatever people mean by that, but this sort of notion that you have a, a neutral space and you can talk about the central space and the half space and the wide space versus what we're seeing a little bit more with pressing teams, like Red Bull system teams, where space is a lot more determined about the location of the ball. So you'll press to that location rather than thinking, oh, do we have the structures to attack with players, players spread around? So maybe different 
concepts of space is, is where the, the next metaphor goes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably fair. But I, mean, I think there's, there's always been, not always, but once pressing entered the mainstream, I sort of think that all football can roughly divide it into, into two testaments, pre-pressing <laughs> and post-pressing. And that, that coming of systematization in the... Systematization maybe rather than pressing because obviously Catanaccio would fall into the systematization. So from the sort of mid-60s onwards, football is a structured team game rather than a game about individuals. And one of the things in the Charlton's book is how different Bobby and Jack saw that. And Bobby, and, and partly this is a psychological thing that I think that in the late 50s, in that sort of 18 months between him making his debut and Munich, I mean, he referred to that as paradise. And it's him playing this individualistic, very attacking football with his mates mm. who were, you know, a year, two years, his age or kind of a couple of years older than him. And that must have been an incredibly intoxicating thing. And to be winning the, the league doing that, and then it's ended by Munich. And he spends his life trying to get back to that. But it's not just that he's lost his mates. It's that that style of football disappears as well. Mm. And Jack under Don Revy, I mean, Jack had been on, on coaching courses. It was him who persuaded Revy to go to, a, to his own system at the back. He saw that football was about structures and systems and Bobby always wanted to be about the individual. And there's an amazing bit in Bobby's autobiography about if Ramsey told him in the 66 World Cup final, you, you've got to mark Franz Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer was a midfielder in those days. And Bobby sort of said, well, can't Nobby Styles do it? And Ramsey was no, because Beckenbauer sits very deep. So Nobby can't go that far forward. It's got to be you. And there's this sort of, see, Bobby talked about lying awake at, that, that night, sort of, should I do that? Is that the right thing to do? <laughs> and and he was still wanting to impose his individualistic model. But fortunately for, for him and for England, yeah, he had a sense of duty and a very sense of, you know, very clear sense of direct authority. I mean, he talked, he did, after his national service, he, he said, oh, I think I probably would have done quite well in the army. Well, he probably would have done because I think he, he liked having somebody telling him what to do. Mm. So Matt Busby and then Ramsey and he followed Ramsey's orders and did mark back and back at the game and, yeah, he was 29 at the time, Beckenbauer was 20, so maybe he'd have dominated him anyway. But you see in 1970 the danger when he wasn't doing that, and that, that moment when he, he loses Beckenbauer in, in 70 and Beckenbauer strides forward and scores, albeit Benetti mistake. And that's the beginning of the end for Ramsey's England. Yeah. The, you know, that, that, that division between systematised and non-systematised football, I think, is, is profound. But once you then get into systematised football, obviously there are then different modes within that and whether whether you press or whether you you, know, you have a, a you know Catanaccio style defense with with whether it's man marking with with uh you know a modified system of zonal marking and then that pressing whether it's man oriented ball oriented or space oriented mm. or some some mixture yeah you know, that's where we are now and i think it's where data is going to be probably already is hugely important the problem with talking about data in football is clubs don't tell you how they use it because that's the arms race at the minute. Mm. But in terms of structuring your press, whichever mode of pressing it is, and using data to, to inform that and make it as sophisticated mm. as possible, and then working out the best way of communicating that to players, that I think is the frontier we're, we're at mm. now. Yeah, no, this sounds all fascinating. I could talk about it. There's a lot. It's, it's funny because like, it feels like we're going through the inverse again now with... We, we've got the elite coaches, all systematizers, and then you've got Carlo Ancelotti's Real Madrid who are... 
you know the 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 the, the, the wonderful team of Galacticos or uh, however you want to call them raising questions about how the systems work right and the big question is like can Pep Guardiola win a Champions League with Man City yeah. but that, that's when it comes down to, to to humans I mean nobody can believe Real Madrid were the best team in Europe last season they're brilliant to watch them mm. win well, at least three ties they didn't deserve to win <laughs> in the final they probably did deserve it but yeah they were very very lucky against PSG they were very very lucky against Chelsea and they were very very lucky against Manchester City mm. and they were able to do it because they had a, a goalkeeper in brilliant form a centre forward in brilliant form and a midfield that functions incredibly well, despite having a combined <laughs> age of about 150. But there still is an element of systematization there. You know, the way that Vinicius works off Karim Benzema, the, the way that Modric and Cruz and Casemiro set up that midfield. I mean, it's just automatic for them. They know what they're doing. I mean, but Ancelotti is just this very, very strange, strange coach full stop that mm. should be sort of a very sacky influence, doesn't appear to be. And the first man to win the league in each of the five major nations yeah he's only ever won it once in each of the five major nations as if he can't he he can't generate the intensity to keep that going to keep that consistency and so you then sort of think well is he just the bloke who comes in after the innovator and Mm. sort of just calms everybody down and makes them feel good about themselves and builds on the foundations but yeah phenomenally successful he's can't really knock it he he will not be appearing (laughs) in any great detail in future pyramids because He's not an innovator. Mm. I think one of the most interesting aspects of the book, and something you've touched on as well, is the the localism of the book. This is about the transmission of ideas, and I, I suppose fundamental to that is the the notion that you know you have a place where an idea hasn't reached, and then and then it, you know the the idea can pervade that place, that country. That's not happening as much anymore. You touch on it in the epilogue to the second edition that we are in an age of globalization. Like, how do ideas transmit when you know someone can write a blog post about? Fernando Denise's Fluminense team and, and someone can read it five minutes later in Mongolia. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about the, the transmission of ideas in quite the same way as you've done it in... in yeah, in, no, I mean, clearly that, that it gets pretty murky. It's sort of, you know, all the plasticines lumped into one. It's mm. this horrible brown mess. The other thing that's changed, not just the transmission of ideas is much quicker. It's that there's a real concentration of talent in, mm. well, one league, to be honest, and maybe a handful of other clubs. And logically, that should mean, you know, if you if you believe all those theories about hubs of knowledge and, and the reason why you know the Silk Road sort of led to to sort of great developments along its route, which I, I I just do, then the Premier League should be where the vast majority of innovations happen because yeah. it's where we have the best players and the best coaches, and they're constantly going head to head against each other. It's phenomenally exciting for us. I don't think it's particularly healthy for the world. Do you think the innovation is happening outside of that at all? I mean, it feels to me like in the Premier League, you you sort of are hamstrung a little bit by just the amount of sheer talent that you have there. I mean, obviously, tactics is always going to help that, but it feels like there's a very elite brand of tactics. If you want to win playing with elite talent, then you play in a certain way, whereas there is a... a yeah, but no, there's a truth to that. I, I just sort of... I'm just not sure it really matters if you... I don't know, you look at something like Buda Glimt. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it matters to Norway, it matters to Buda Glimt, but... So it's almost like, you know, so what? Until Shettle Knutson is brought to the Premier League. Yeah. It doesn't exist, right? I guess. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and, and yeah, Pyramid is pretty self-consciously talking about the elite level. Yeah. It's just that the elite level used to be spread over 30 or 40 countries rather than one. Yeah. You'd like to think that it might make a difference at the World Cup, but I suspect managers don't have enough time. Mm. Well, well, you know, what I'd love 
is, and this really can only happen in North Korea, but I'd really love some North Korean genius to work out something totally new and away from any eyes looking at it, develop this sort of unseen brand of football <laughs> and suddenly unleash it on the world at a World Cup. But I, I suspect that that won't be happening. So this globalization and the shift to globalization, how does that impact the future of histories of football tactics? Do you think? Oh, they get messier. It, be <laughs> it becomes very difficult. And things just don't, you know, things change much more quickly now. Uh, you know, you, you can't just spin out the same style of football game after game after game. You have to make allowances for other teams. Other teams get used to how you play. I mean, I do wonder whether it sort of took five years, maybe four years for people to work out how to play against Guardiola's Barcelona. That, you know, if, if you say he starts 2008, they're phenomenally successful for three years. 2012 when Mourinho wins the league, I don't really think Mourinho sort of worked him out. He just sort of worn him down. And you think about the way they lost the, the semi-final of that uh, Champions League to Chelsea. Yeah. It's a freakish result that set a pattern that we're still seeing the day of Guardiola somehow losing big games inexplicably. Yeah. But I think the moment when when sort of that era of Spanish hegemony comes to an end is those two semi-finals in 2013 when Dortmund beat Real Madrid and Bayern beat Barca. Yeah. And again, you, you can say, well, that's because Guardiola had gone and it was Tito Villanova. And, but, but that's when it, it feels like somebody's worked out a style that, that, that works against that, that Barcelona style. Yeah. The um, end of football was over, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did, yeah, did it, but I, I, I both think I think in the modern age, four or five years is actually a, a really long run. I'd, I'd be surprised if we saw a hegemonic style like that. And what what it feels like now is we're just in the every way of playing at the elite level now. Maybe not Simeone, but apart from him, maybe not Ancelotti is a variation on that Barcelona method. Mm. So even the the German the the Klopp method. It's okay. On, from the one hand, it's this team is really good at retaining possession. Therefore, we have to work out a way of being better at regaining possession. And so you you, you get the yeah the, the Dortmund Liverpool incredibly ferocious hard press to win the ball back, and then Guardiola adapts to that. And the Klopp's also gone towards the, the Guardiola model. And even pressing is. Pressing was the thing that, that sort of was most distinctive about total football when it first emerged in you know, the very late 60s, early 70s. So yes, Klopp's teams did it more aggressively. They did it with greater energy and they did it with less concern for what happened when they won the ball and protecting themselves against a counter, counter, counter. Mm. But they're accepting the terms of a debate. Whereas Simeone, I think, stands in a totally yeah. different debate. Yeah. And Simeone, I think, looks increasingly isolated and... And old-fashioned. Yeah. Julian Nagelsmann, I find really fascinating in this respect, especially this season, uh, because he's moved from like that tradition of Red Bull pressing, narrow attacking, direct attacking, counter-pressing, winning the ball back, destabilizing. And he develops this sort of more positional approach that you would expect from Pep Guardiola, but then gets rid of Robert Lewandowski and then goes back to a more sort of consciously Red Bull approach while he's at Bayern, which feels like the opposite way mm. around as well. So... Nagelsmann, I, I sort of feel, is a bit of a victim of Germany and the nature of German football. That clearly, yeah, phenomenally talented coach, but he keeps failing in Europe. Mm. And so, his Hoffenheim when they played Liverpool, okay, clearly they're they're underdogs. So that that Champions League playoff, when was that? Five years ago, something like that. Yeah. And I sort of thought, oh, this could be could be a real test for Liverpool. 
right? It wasn't. They just blew them away. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, with Leipzig, every time he sort of thought, oh, this is this is the Nagelsmann's real test. Mm. He fails it, but he's not really getting. You know, okay, with Leipzig, you do get tested maybe in two or three games a season or against two or three opponents a season. Still, a lot of teams a lot worse than Leipzig in the Bundesliga, and with Bayern, it's even worse. Yeah. And that's a massive problem that modern football has, and particularly modern football outside the Premier League, that you have to have two totally different models of how to play. Yeah. And it's, it's it's hurt PSG, it's hurt Juve, and in fact, it continues to hurt Juve because there's attempts to put that right <laughs> that have caused the, yeah. the, the the collapse within Italy. I'd really like to see maybe a, a tactical history talked about in terms of when winning the league was the most important thing to when it winning competitions was the most important thing because that definitely has an impact in your tactical style right competition as in cup competitions cup competitions yeah, yeah sorry um, no definitely well in fact you, you see that if you look back there was um uh what's it called it uh, was a local paper in sheffield the sheffield telegraph and star mm. i think if you, i mean it, it for some reason it led the world in tactical coverage <laughs> in the first decades of the 20th century. I've got no idea why, but I salute their editor for, uh, <laughs> for making that decision. And then they, they have a very clear idea that there's a distinction between a league team and a cup team. So I think Barnsley were famous as a cup team because they were sort of hard-fighting grafters rather than you know, people who you, you back to score goals over mm. a consistent period of time, which just slightly feels like the opposite of what you'd expect. You'd think that the, the sort of grafters would be the ones who would be able to keep it going through a league season, whereas your sort of flimsy Tottenham of the 1980s would be the cup team. But, you know, Sheffield Telegraph and Star, if that is indeed what it's called, <laughs> had it the other way around. So, but yeah, I, I think I think you, you're right that... Um, I, I, I think that's also changed with things like squad sizes. In doing the Charlton's book, you realise Leeds were the best team in the country for years. We never won anything because they were too good. <laughs> Yeah, they, they didn't have the squad to, to keep up with how many competitions they were they were battling in. Mm. And yeah, if, if the season had finished in the you know, beginning of April every year, they'd, they'd have won everything. And you have a famous game against Derby in, I think it was yeah. Easter, Easter Monday, 1970. It's, be, it's just before <laughs> they lose to, to Celtic in the European Cup semi-final. Yeah. So yeah. And, and supposedly it's one of the reasons why Clough had this massive falling out with, with Revy was... Revy picked the second string side for this league game. Derby won four one because he he had the cup final coming up and mm. and these these two two legs of a European Cup semi against Celtic and they got fined for it. But now it'd be a completely maybe would fine a team for resting players before a cup final. Now I've got a question here just about the response to inverting the pyramids. Inverting the pyramid is so exhaustive a history in many respects is that it almost feels unassailable. And what I, I mean hope by so. That, <laughs> well, what I mean by that is that you know, in order to disagree with anything in it, you have to be so erudite and well-read in in both history and football history that there's almost no one who can actually, outside of academia, I suppose, be able to to sort of raise many questions about it. So I wondered if you felt because you your background is in academia, whether or not you felt as though you didn't get as much pushback as you wanted when the books came out. I don't want pushback. I just want people telling me I'm brilliant. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, I have actually had quite a lot of people, it's not really pushback. It's more so sort of saying, oh, have you considered this? Yeah, or sure. so lots of people from all kinds of backgrounds and, and all, all different countries have sort of suggested, yeah, maybe this bloke's actually quite important or maybe you've overstated this or mm. actually that's not quite how it played out. And so that's one of the useful things about being able to keep on revising it is, yeah. 
it's, it's not that it was wrong before, but you can be more precise. Mm. It, you know, it's a history. It's not a catalogue. So you can't, you can't list everybody. You do get people who, who you sort of have trod in their particular area and they get very angry about that and they you know, accuse you of having misrepresented something and then you, you do some reading and you think, actually, I'm okay or whatever, it's fine. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't pretend that it's absolutely 100% accurate in all regards. Mm-hmm. No book ever is. It can't be. And if, if people find mistakes or, or things that they think could be slightly tweaked or amended, by all means, get in touch and mm-hmm. I can have a look at it and we see whether it does need a bit of a polish you don't anticipate anyone rewriting the whole history with a different metaphor and no <laughs> well good luck to him <laughs> yeah yeah don't i'll come and kill you <laughs> um one more question just about just tactics writing in general because obviously inverting the pyramid has become a catalytic moment for tactical writing about football and obviously 2008 is a long time ago the tactics writing sphere has burgeoned should we say since then i just wondered what your thoughts are on the way that it's gone none of it can be bad right you know people thinking about it, people talking about it that's, that's i've great. seen some tactics right now i consider bad well okay <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that people are, are trying to engage i you know i wouldn't want to discourage anybody from doing that and the internet is a very complex thing with many bad aspects people writing blogs about tactics are not one of the worst aspects of it <laughs> A lot of it is nonsense. That's also true. And I worried about this myself that, yeah, I'm not a footballer. I'm not a football coach. I've never played at any level. There was that time in the in the Cambridge University Leagues, though, that you scored that. Oxford that University Oh, it was Oxford, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dear me, I've, I've committed, committed <laughs> yeah. a heinous sin. Yeah, look, if you want to talk about my, my curler against Scottish Church in uh, 1997, then I'm entirely... Well, okay, we, 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 there's a corner. Ball was cleared. Comes to Neil Shepard, our captain on the halfway line. I've come out with a defensive line. I'm on the left. He's played it through. Little step over. Drag it back through the defender's legs. Corner of the box. Bend it in. Beautiful. 11 You described the, the goalkeeper as having a moment that reminded you of another goalkeeper. It was very Gary Bailey Gary against Bailey, Ronnie Wheeler right, in 1983. Yeah. And I, I respect him for that. <laughs> he could have just stood and watched it and made it look rubbish, but he didn't. He did the full arched back, desperate. And they were already 10 nil down at the time, so <laughs> he'd have had every right just to watch it go past him. But, yeah. And I sort of thought, you know, is, is this the kind of thing that the people in football are going to think is just absurd? Mm. And, and so you try and counter that by talking to as many people as possible and reading as many well-informed people as possible. Uh, and, you know, I interviewed, I don't know how many people, but... Yeah, loads and loads and loads of people all over the world. And people like Graham Taylor were incredibly generous with, with their time. And every now and again, you see a coach mentions it and you say, oh, thank God for that. I mean, I think I possibly have to take some blame for Craig Levine playing that 4-6-0 for Scotland <laughs> against the Czech Republic. He did seem to be talking very much in terms I recognised when he was describing <laughs> what he was doing. And there was a moment, um, it was a Europa League final, I can't remember which one. But I found myself waiting by a luggage carousel at Luton or Stansted, one, one of the lesser airports. And it was late at night. There was nobody about. And suddenly David Pleat emerges <laughs> on my right shoulder. Are you, are you the one who wrote that book? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, what you said about Everton pioneering five midfield. What about my Tottenham? Go on, David. Tell me about your Tottenham. <laughs> and he talks me through it. But his point wasn't that I was wrong. It was just that I, yeah. I should have talked about him as well. Fair enough. So, you know, I now put in a sentence about about his Tottenham. So I haven't found any football person who thinks it's rubbish. 
that's that's hopefully a good sign. Yeah, a lot of it's problem solving, isn't it? And I think, you know, if you're a coach or if you're working as an analyst, then any attempt to try and solve the, the same problem, even if it is as oblique as someone blogging on a on, on the internet, I think is, is well respected. And there's a lot of, I mean, Rene Maric is the... Mm. Yeah. Is the, 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 the but then there's also a difference between writing about tactics right now in, in this mm. moment sure. and going back and asking a coach, what did you do in that game? Right. Or, or, you know, one of the things that was incredible uh, treasure trove was finding Gustav Shebesh's notebooks. And the great thing is Shebesh was not a tactician, really. He was... So, you know, this is the, the coach of, of Hungary in the early 50s mm. who leads them to the two huge victories over England in 53 and 54, leads them to the 54 World Cup, wins the Olympics with them in 52. And he really was a... I mean, you know, he'd been a very good centre-half 10, 12 years earlier. So it wasn't that he was an idiot. It wasn't that he didn't know anything. But he was his skill was managing people and managing the communist committees. And he was constantly in dialogue with people like Martin Bukovic, who I think mm. is the great tactician of the 20th century uh, and you know, he, he, Gula Mandic he had as his assistant mm. for a long time because he knew that the tactics weren't really what he did so his notebooks are fascinating because mm. it's him explains himself what he's doing yeah. and that's why you know you get people one of the criticisms that I got was people say oh actually Hungary when they beat England 6-3 at Wembley in 53 were playing a 4-2-4 and this, you know, Ron Greenwood said that and Terry Venable said that I, I, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I, I haven't been able to find evidence of them saying that or precisely what they said. But you look at Chebyshev's notebooks, it's not, it's not a 424. It's a stepping stone towards that. Mm. And I suspect that's probably what Greenwood or Venables mm. said if they were, you know, whatever they said about, about that game. But it was clearly a three, Zakarash, as a deep lying central midfielder who occasionally would drop in as a second centre back. And Hidakuti is a centre forward, but he's, he's dropping deep. But he's never getting as, alongside Boschik. So it's a 3-2-1-4 if you want to put numbers on it, which yeah, clearly is close to a 4-2-4, but it, mm. it's not what Brazil understood by the 4 four five years later. Yeah, I mean, my videos all the time have people in the comments being like, oh, you said this is a back three, but it looked like a back four to me. I think it's just a, it's happened through all time, hasn't it? People yeah. disagreeing on, on what a formation is because it, it's very flexible. Well, you saw that, I mean... Uh, um, the uh, Graham Potter formation, yeah, Chelsea against was, Salzburg. That was the very oh, right, okay, game yeah. where a lot of people were like, well, it's a back four. Yeah, was Sterling a, a wing back or was he a, yeah. a, a Tonante? Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of uh, people saying he's a winger with defensive. Yeah, winger with defensive. I was like, yeah. well, that's what I call a wing back, right? Isn't a wing back is a, is, a, is a winger with defensive right. responsibilities. But I mean, there's no right, there's no wrong in yeah, that. Sure. The wrong thing is to be prescriptive about it. Mm. Yeah. You've mentioned this book a number of times through. The conversation that two brothers, the life and lives of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. Yeah, always be selling. Yeah. Uh, it sounds Great like Christmas present. Perfect Christmas present. Sounds like there's a lot of tactical stuff in there, though. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think they do represent, uh, and slightly oddly, I think, the, I mean, they're, they're the eldest of four brothers. So, but let's count, you know, it's the same thing just as a pair. And the elder one is the revolutionary, and the younger one is the conservative. Mm. But they do represent those two strands not just in football tactics, but just in life. Bobby was, in terms of personality, he was very quiet, very reserved, very introverted. In terms of politics, I think, yeah, he was a Daily Mail reading, loyalist, you know, small C conservative. Whereas Jack, in as far as he expressed political, I mean, Bobby never really expressed political opinions. It's sort of other people said he was a Daily Mail reading mm. uh, loyalist, but it, it fits with what we know of him. And, you know, very keen on doing his duty and turning up and, yeah, God knows how many memorial services he had to go through. And Jack 
spoke in favor of a minor strike, I think was instinctively on the side of the worker, mm. uh, whether that constituted any sort of really thought through socialist thesis, I doubt, but, but he, he did, did think about it. I mean, there's a documentary he did, I don't know, early nineties sometime when he, he sort of says, he's, he goes back to Ashington he's, and Ashington was still not in a great shape, but was in a pretty bad way in the immediate aftermath of the of a minor strike. And he says, oh yeah, I was on the side of the strikers and I, yeah, I thought it was a, a terrible thing when the pits closed. He said, but you talk to many of the lads now and they say it's the best thing that could happen for them. You sort of think, well, you don't hear that perspective very often. Mm. I don't think it's fully true, but it's also not untrue that, you know, it's not like Jack's father's life working five and a half days a week underground, incredibly dangerous, uncomfortable, inhospitable conditions for not much money was some kind of mm. you know, glorious age. It was just an age when Ashington was a bit more prosperous than, than it is now. Mm. Yeah. And how can and the individuals weren't, the town was. And they had, you know, the incredible welfare clubs and yeah, there was a was a real support structure there, which mm. sport was absolutely the centre of, which I think is one of the reasons Ashington is this bizarre, yeah, produced mm. three footballers of a year between 1961 and 1966, three different footballers of a year. The same street produced three different footballers of a year, both the Charltons and Jimmy Adamson. Mm. And has also produced two of England's greatest ever fast bowlers, one of whom won a World Cup. And I presume you watched Sherwood on the BBC. I did, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that, I found that, as someone who obviously grew up after a lot of this stuff. But Nottinghamshire. Uh, yeah, but in, in terms of just the way that that, that, those, that that sort of period and that sort of way of life shaped communities, I think mm. is, is really interesting as well. And presumably that kind of comes through in the book as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up in Sondland, so the, the, the nearest pit to me had closed in the 60s. But, you know, you were aware of it and you were aware of its legacy. And certainly the, the shipyards were the things that I was sort of, a, as a kid growing up, I was aware of them disappearing. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I remember the, the minor strike. I, was, I mean, I was a child. I was, what, seven, eight during the strike. But I remember chants of football matches. And I remember this sort of instinctive hostility people had to the police. Mm. And so not really understanding why. And then sort of coming to understand that, well, if you're in opposition on the picket line, you're mm. in opposition on the terrace as well. So the story is told, is, the, is that opposition between the, the personalities of Jackie and Bobby, is that fundamental to the way that the story is told? Yeah. I made an early decision, I mean, partly because Gabriel Clark's brilliant, brilliant film about Jack mm. is sort of, I, I don't think there's anything else to be said about his dementia and about the family. And also Bobby now has dementia. The last thing, yeah, I... I went through dementia with both my parents. The last thing I wanted to do was to get in the way or ask awkward questions or, and I found this slightly with the Clough book. That if you, once you start talking to members of the family, you're compromised. It changes the type of book you can write. You sort of feel you have to prioritize the family's memories. And I also, I find that I don't really, I don't feel comfortable going into private spaces. I think some people do it extremely well and some people do it with incredible sensitivity. Yeah. I personally, would not be able to do that. And so I was much more interested in the, the public persona. And and so you had Liam McKinstry's book on the two of them came out 20, I don't know, 20, 21, 22 years ago, something like that. Uh, and it's diff it's very different to that book because that's very much about them as individuals, as, as people. Mm -hmm. This is a book really about putting them in, in the socioeconomic sure. picture and, and talking about how they represent the strands of English culture in the 20, second half of the, and Irish culture in the second half of the, of the 20th century. Mm. 
So the book's called Two Brothers, The Life and Lives of Bobby and Jackie Charlton. That's out now? Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the best way of people getting hold of it? Bookshops, Guardian website, Amazon, I mean, bookshop.org. Mm. I mean, don't go to Amazon. And, <laughs> but if you can't get any other way, go to Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the usual caveat supply. Buy, buy in a sensitive way that gets me the most money possible <laughs> and supports local booksellers. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on today. Cheers, thank you.